Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hello, wine friends, and welcome back to another episode. Now I am so keen to show the next two episodes with you. I've had the absolute pleasure to talk with Henry Jeffries, who is not just a phenomenal writer, but a wonderful speaker as well. He's been on BBC Radio 4 and 5. He was the wine critic for The Lady. He's been in The Spectator, The Guardian. Now, last year, Fortnum & Mason awarded him Drinks Writer of the Year, and you're going to find some of his books, such as The Home Bar, The Cocktail Dictionary, How Ever, I will be picking Henry's brains about his latest book release called Vines in a Cold Climate, which was released this year. You can get it from Amazon. I, being very lazy, or no, okay, wait, busy, <laughs> decided to download it as an audiobook and it's read by Henry himself. Now, this book, it is about the people behind the English wine revolution, and it is absolutely fascinating. Now, I appreciate for those of you living in the UK, this is going to be far more relevant because we can access all these wines that are mentioned. However, the way in which the book is written, there is something in this book for everyone. There's chapters looking at the different sparkling wine styles of the world. There's a chapter on organics, which really dives deep into the pros, the cons, what's right, what's wrong, allowing you to make up your own opinion. There's talk on global warming and how it's affecting vineyards. And a whole chapter on tourist attractions for those of you abroad coming to London and wanting to perhaps go and visit somebody. Now, in this specific episode mentioned, there will be masters of wine and instrumental winemakers that have really helped the English wine industry. I promise you some fantastic gossip about Pierre-Emmanuel Tattinger. So we are going across to Champagne. And talking of Champagne, it's really interesting comparing the climate, the volume, the yields between England and Champagne. So we'll be discussing that a little bit more. You will learn about the evolution of wines in England. Henry in the book talks about a specific old formula that was just applied to cool climate wines when they were made in the winery, which we will discuss and I found fascinating. Oh, we'll be going down the route of talking about Tibetan singing bowls in a winery. So <laughs> we cover it all in part one. Now, before we go to the episode, as you know, I have received the immense support of Wickham's Wine this season as they sponsor all of the episodes. So I'm really happy to be able to share the news that for the third year in a row, they've been shortlisted by the Decanter Retailer Awards for Best Online Retailer and Best England and Wales Specialist. Now, when you are listening to this, the results will already be out, but I don't know what they are yet. So on the following episode, I will let you know if they have won. But 
I'm genuinely super happy that they've even had this recognition yet again. And if you want to go over to their website, the website link is in the show notes. And if you use the code EATSLEEP10, you're going to get yourself 10% off on your first order. But for now, pour yourself a glass, ideally, of English wine and prepare yourself for some wine stories, some wine facts and some behind the scenes wine gossip. (laughs) I have to go to the first most important question, of course, of why did you end up writing this wine book? You've obviously been in the wine trade and in publishing for years, but was there a moment that made you think, right, the world needs to know about English wine and the people behind it? The moment came actually when somebody phoned me up and said, do you want to write a book about English wine? <laughs> so so I, can, I can remember the exact moment. He's a chap called Derek Wyatt, who is a publisher. And, okay. And my first thought was, no, I don't Not think, really? Uh, no, I thought Oz Clark had written a great book, just uh-huh. come out. I thought Stephen Skelton's books were brilliant. I thought the world doesn't really need another book about English wine. And then I sort of thought about it a bit and just thought, how could I approach it differently? Obviously, right. St- mm-hmm. you know, Oz and Stephen have their own distinct styles. They know, you know, far more about the subject than I ever will. But what can I bring to it? And I was very lucky. I went to a a wine lunch that was put on by chap called a Frenchman called Jerome Moisson, who mm-hmm. makes cosmetics out of leftover grape stuff. Oh, I like the sound with, of that. Yeah, he okay. works with Adrian Pike from Westwell. And I sat, okay. next, sat next to Adrian at this dinner or lunch, and he was so full of stories, most of them totally scandalous and unprintable about people <laughs> in the wine industry. And I thought to myself, you know, there's a story here, because most of the time all you hear about is everyone gets on brilliantly, isn't it great, bright future, da-da. And Mm -hmm. I thought, well, yeah, I mean, that's one side of the story, but also there's kind of conflict. There's big personalities who don't get on. So I thought I'd kind of approach it as if it was like Dallas or maybe not quite Dallas, Howard's Way, you know, sort of big personalities Uh not getting on, argument, Uh conflict, you know, that kind of stuff. I felt it. I did. I, 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 the way I was describing it to people was like, no, you like, this is like getting all the insider secrets. It's like a little bit, it's like a sophisticated gossip column. <laughs> well, I just way. thought I can't compete with Oz and Stephen on the wine stuff. So I just thought, you know, uh-huh. make the wine secondary and make it about the people. And as soon as I thought, make it about the people, then I wouldn't say the book fell into place because it was bloody mm-hmm. hard work trying to condense all of it. But I then knew what I had to do, which was just to go for the good big stories and then see how the book worked once I had the stories. Yeah, no, amazing. So that was the the idea. Was there something that was far more challenging for you when you were writing this book? Were there any surprises on the way? I mean, there were a lot of surprises on the way. I think the, I mean, I mean, we can sort of go into that. But I think the biggest challenge was just like, who do I include and who do I not include? Because mm. if you're looking at the early days, you know, there aren't that many producers who were going in the 70s who are still going. So you've got to have Peter Hall, you've got to have Biddenden, you've got to get Stephen Skelton in there. But when it got to like the present day, I mean, like, there's like five <laughs> urban do? wineries in London, all making uh-huh. brilliant wine. I can't put them all in. So that was really, really hard 
you know, deciding mm. who to put in and who to leave out. Mm. And in the end, it was just sort of like, what do these producers represent? So you've got some kind of money men, you've got some big businesses, you've got some mavericks, you've got some urban wineries. Once I had a sort of couple of voices from each sort of segment of the industry and enough good stories, then I kind of almost deliberately put my hands over my ears and was just like, I'm not going to listen to any more <laughs> because there's too much going on. Uh, yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned there were so many stories. So I wonder whether some didn't make the cut. What what was some of the most memorable? Or have you, did you have some pretty unique wine-related experiences on this journey that you can kind of share with us? Something well, yeah, I mean, there's so, some of the stories are literally like sitting down with Owen Elias from Balfour, who I'm sure mm-hmm. you know very well. I know very well. was yes. just such an experience, him talking about the early days of Chapel Down. And in the end, there was just, there was stuff where he described a certain producer in a certain way, which I'm not going to say, which I just <laughs> thought, you know, I can't put that in because it's libelous. But in the end, you know, what he said was so entertaining, describing working with like crooks and charlatans and things, which was just... <laughs> which was just brilliant. After the book came out, all this stuff about Pierre-Emmanuel Tattinger, you know, who's involved mm. with Domaine Evremont in Kent, came out about his champagne fueled sex parties and things like that. So, Hang on a minute. That wasn't in the book, was it? Did I miss that? No, no, one? I missed See, I missed that. That story broke basically just as the book was published. And I was like, oh, if only I could have got that in. How did I miss that? So hang on, sorry, because I can't all be over the only the papers. one. It was, it was... It was his ex-mistress right. was stalking him. And there was a sort of restraining order. Just look it up. Pierre-Emmanuel Tattinger. And then, <laughs> because I, I remember meeting him at the launch or the planting for Domaine uh-huh. Evremont. So this is Tattinger's yes. joint venture, very near me in Faversham. Mm-hmm. And he gave this tremendous speech about, and he was, you know, you could see he was one of those Frenchmen, you know, with a twinkle in his eye, an eye for the ladies. So I describe him in the book as, you know, clearly a bit of a rogue. But I, did, <laughs> I, I couldn't have even comprehended you how much You could smell it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I missed that one. That's a shame. That's a shame. But then unusual stories. It was really funny going down to Oostbrook. Do you know Oostbrook? I do. I mean, yes, America is definitely a character, is she not? She's very memorable. Mm -hmm. She is Brazilian. Her name Mm -hmm. is America Brewer. She was born on the 4th of July, which is why she's called Mm -hmm. America. Mm -hmm. And I met her and her husband, and they farm a very small plot near, sort of on the Kent-Sussex border. And they were talking to me, and then they produced this thing, it's called a Tibetan singing bowl. (laughs) <laughs> it's made, I, think it's of, I think it's made of brass. Yes, and they put you it on your talk head, about this, don't you? And, in the and they spin it and then they <laughs> hit it with a hammer and you get all this kind of, not, not very hard, not with a sledgehammer, you know, gently. <laughs> and then you get all this weird sort of hypnotic noises and stuff. And this was like spinning on my head with all these weird noises while they were trying to explain to me, you know, their journey into wine. So that was, de- and they also, they have a hobbit house on, on the property. So the whole thing was like being in a dream. I just sort of turned up and then I had a bowl on my head and then there was a hobbit house and then we were having some wine and the whole thing was just, yeah, very, yeah. very Alice in Wonderland. 
I mean, I can vouch for that because I've been down to that estate. And of course, they live on the estate and they've got a swimming pool, which you basically drive past to get to the actual winery part. And it's kind of crazy. It You do feel on a sunny day that you could be in Brazil. It's like she's brought Brazil to the Kent Sussex countryside, which is really bizarre. And yet you'll see her driving around on a tractor in the highest of heels thinking what the hell are you doing and if you meet her she'll be like what it's my tractor can do what I want <laughs> I know when you sort of tell the story like that it makes them seem like they're not serious but you taste the wines and they are deadly yeah. serious you know the mm-hmm. wines the still wines like their pinot blanc I think is one of the best still wines in England but if you kind of sort of saw them on Instagram you just think who are these crazy people I know, I know. It's Isn't it wonderful? I think people think that English wine is probably just so basic, so simple. People haven't even, they don't even, they're not aware that we're even doing still wines. And it's like, honestly, like you said, the characters, the people behind it, all the excitement. There's so, there is so much to talk about. And you've actually really encapsulated that in your book. Oh my God, that is, that is so funny. Tibetan, I, I'll keep that in mind. Tibetan bowls. Okay. Bringing the spiritual experience to wine. I love it. Did you, did you, exactly. do you think though, that when you tasted the wine, they tasted better because of the tuning of the Tibetan bowl. Well, actually, the, the bowl was after the wine. So, ah. so, so so maybe I should have done a before and after thing. Now, that is something that could be an interesting experiment, could it not? Tasting wine and then tasting it after having done one of these tuning, getting the frequency different. There has to be something with, if you're changing the frequency of the energy around you, surely your taste buds would be different. It's very biodynamic, isn't it? I imagine that's the Mm -hmm. kind of thing that people who are heavily into biodynamics would do. (laughs) Well, I'm going to investigate into that and then I'll get back to you. Now, I want to, actually, I just want to hear some of your own personal stories because actually you touched on in the book, which I think is bizarre. You're a wine writer and you were in Germany on the steep slopes of Mosul. And I don't know whether you didn't really talk about how you felt about this from 6am in the morning, we're kind of dragged onto these slopes to pick grapes to basically midday, which for anyone who doesn't know, picking grapes is nowhere near as romantic as it seems. After half an hour, you're exhausted, your back aches and you want to drink some wine. I mean, (laughs) what was it like actually picking for that amount of time on the steep slopes of Mosul? It was horrible, actually. We were were in the itinerary. This was on a press trip to the Mosul to show off their famous steep slopes. Mm -hmm. And on the, in the itinerary, it was sort of see how the grapes are harvested. So I thought we'd be there. We'd watch the grapes being harvested for 10 minutes, go off and try some wine. Instead, we were picked up in a van (laughs) at six in the morning, freezing cold October day, sort of damp and misty, driven to these steep slopes. And then said, given some secateurs and said, get working. It's so and mean. We, and we picked from about, so we woke up at six, probably started 6.30, 7 o'clock. And then we picked for hours and hours and hours until 12, 12.30. And then we went and had some lunch. And it was, it was cold. It was damp. And then you were on these slopes. I don't know if they're quite 45 degrees, but they're bloody dangerous. I mean, if you, if you slipped, you could fall all the way down to the bottom into the river. Um, so it was quite a, one of the people on the trip was this Canadian wine writer who was uh-huh. in his 60s and he was not looking very happy at oh, all. That, oh, no. So I you... think the whole press trip was basically a way to get free labour 
out of <laughs> out of journalists because they because they were struggling to get pickers from Romania and Bulgaria because they're so in demand. Uh-huh. Um, so they were like, I know, we'll get these Canadian journalists to help out. So yeah, no, I, we we put in a full morning's work. Well, I hope you get a bottle of that wine from the exact vineyard that you picked. It's the very we, least. You know, we did. We, we did get a very good lunch, but no, we mm. didn't get. We didn't get a bottle of wine, sadly. Well, anybody who's not in the wine industry listening to this, yeah, trying to find pickers. I think all over the world, it's just a constant problem now. I mean, we certainly have that in England. You touch on that in the book. I think, hence why. <laughs> You talked about your own personal experience, being abused. You think you're going to be flown, have a wonderful experience, sit down, go through beautiful tastings, but yeah, yeah. Bit, bit more labour than expected, huh? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, making journalists work, you know, it's just not how dare How dare they? Well, anyway, bringing it back to English wines, what were the first few English wines that you've ever tried? And I guess your thoughts? I think the first one I ever had was at a, a wedding in Suffolk. And it mm-hmm. was, this would have been in sort of 99, 2000. And it really wasn't very good. It was sort of off dry, sort of sweet, sugary, but with this acidity like nothing else I'd ever tasted. It was just, it sort of makes your whole mouth close down. Oh, dear. <laughs> and then my father used to sometimes bring back English wines because we live in Buckinghamshire. He lives in Buckinghamshire. Mm-hmm. And he'd go off on walks and he'd go and visit some little vineyard and he'd buy some wine. And it was generally pretty awful. And so it wasn't really until, I don't know, 2009, 2010, that I started having English sparkling wines that were quite good. I, you know, I think I had my first Ridgeview or something in mm-hmm. yeah. 07, 08. And they were quite good, you know, not earth-shattering, but, you know, very, very good quality. But I've always been quite sceptical about the about the still ones. So it, it took me a long time to find English still wines that I actually really appreciated. I think they've got exponentially better. Even in the last five years, I think they just, or even in the last three years, I think they just get better and better every year as people learn how to grow the grapes better, how to harvest them mm-hmm. riper. And then how to deal with that acidity. You know, there's certain techniques that, that um, producers use. But I wasn't a fan. And I think that shows in the book. I don't come at the industry as uh, someone who is in love with it. I'm, I'm very sceptical about English wine. So when I do love an English wine, it generally tends to be really, really good. Well, so in that case, because I think you touch on the book, you say in the 1970s, basically, which was before, you know, I haven't even started drinking wine until for me, I started drinking wine about 15 years ago. So definitely I have no stories from the past of English wines. But you were saying in the book that basically in the 1970s, you just needed to add grape juice and every, you know, so that you could reach five, you know, 10 grams of residual sugar per litre because nothing was ever bone dry, I guess, because everyone was just trying to deal with that crazy amount of acidity, right? So <laughs> I think Peter Hall was trying to make bone dry wines. I mean, I've never okay. tried them, but okay. I think he was, that was his thing. He wanted, he had Sable Blanc and Muller Turgau, and he wanted to have no residual sugar. But most other producers were adding what the Germans call Sus Reserve, which I think was the way of of just, yeah, tempering that really hard acidity. Otherwise the wine's in a huge, I, mean, I haven't actually tried these, obviously, nor have you, these 70s and 80s wines, but, but this is what from reading Stephen Skelton and talking to various producers, that most of them had 
grape juice added. Otherwise, they would have been undrinkable. Mm. Well, one of my takeaways from the book, which so everybody, yeah, I mean, we will hardly be discussing anything. There's so much in this book, but you mentioned Peter Hall and I wrote down the formula that you spoke about because the problem was that people didn't really know how to make wine in England. And you talk about how he was working with, what was the winemaker? Y- oh, Carl Heinz Yona. Yes, Carl Heinz Yona. And he ended up getting sued by Peter Hall <laughs> for completely destroying the first wine, right? Yeah, I bet, yeah, I'm not sure if it was if it was quite sued, but he he demanded payment from yeah. Lamberhurst, the vineyard where the wines were made, for the payment of the wine for mucking up the wine. Basically, what Karl Heinz Jona had done, and, and I think you know he's gone on to become one of the most respected figures in English and later German wine. But I think he was very very new. He was just out of Geisenheim, mm-hmm. and he was given some grapes by Peter Hall, which and I think they were unusually good good quality grapes. And he'd applied sort of formulaic techniques to it, assuming that the grapes wouldn't be ripe. So he diluted them to bring down the acidity. He added sugar to bring up the alcohol. I think he added citric acid. Basically, he just Mm -hmm. did all this stuff to the grapes that didn't need it and ended up, as Peter Hall put it, completely goofing it up. Um, and and then Peter Hall had a sort of legal fight on his hands and eventually a year or two later got some money out of out of Laberhurst, the producer where the wines were made. But but apparently there were no hard feelings. And Karl Heinz Jona, I should add, has gone on to become a you know a very well respected figure. Um so we won't We won't uh, dwell. We won't dwell on this this this, this one mishap. Well, I anyway, I just think that for me, that just stuck out of my head. It's so cool to really know, almost like the behind the scenes, where did we come from? Because many people will be listening to this as well that don't live in England, who are perhaps not as interested in English wine because they can't get their hands on it as easily as we can. But I would imagine that this is true for many, many wine regions and wine countries that have perhaps only just taken off in the last 20, 30, 40 years as well. So it's just fascinating just to kind of have that better understanding of the accidents, the evolution that can happen in the wine world. So I thought that was that was brilliant. And oh well this is the thing yeah. is that nobody knew what they were doing because it was all so <laughs> new. Whereas if you go you, know, you go to the Loire, they have all these vintages and they go, this is what we do in a vintage like this, this is what we do in a vintage like that. Whereas or you know even Australia, you know, they've been making wine for a hell of a long time in Australia. Mm-hmm. But in England there were no records. There was no, you know, there was no one to talk to. So there was just people just kind of making it up or trying to base base it on what happens in Germany. And Germany has a very, very different climate. It's much, much warmer. You have much longer summers. So you can't blame these people for getting it wrong because there was no there was no precedent. Well, it's funny as well that you said about how we had no idea what we were doing. One of the other things you talk about, so Stephen Skelton gets mentioned a lot because he is a very important person to know about considering the evolution of the English wine movement. Um, But apparently people were really upset with him and considered him cheating because he actually had a viticulture degree. (laughs) Yes, well, he he won some award. And then the person from the UKVA, the United Kingdom Viticultural Association, phoned him up and said, you know, Skelton, you've won this award, but I say it's not cricket, you, you know, going off to Germany and learning how to do it properly. And that was the (laughs) attitude of the time. It was an amateur industry. And people like 
Skelton, Hall, they were the sort of mavericks because they were actually mm-hmm. going, look, we're going to do this properly and we're going to make money out of it. Everyone else, you know, before them, it was a retirement project. Fascinating. And actually, I suppose it's worth mentioning for everyone listening, we keep on saying, or you keep on talking about Peter Hall, that is the winery Breaky Bottom, which actually is, you know, has been going for a long time now. So if anyone wants to try and get hold of a Breaky Bottom wine. And they oh, sell yeah, them- Nowadays, they are absolutely wonderful. And if you can get mm-hmm, one of his mm-hmm. sparkling Sable Blanc, especially an old vintage, they're just, there's nothing like them. They're absolutely extraordinary. And he's got quite a few wines. I don't know if the Sable Blanc is in Waitrose, but they do- have quite a few wines in Waitrose. So actually, anyone who wants to try a breaky bottom wine, it's quite easy to at least find a few of his wines. Whether Seville Blanc is in there or not, I don't know. Now let's talk about another producer who, of course, started all the night timber effect, if it wasn't for them planting, who knows where we may be. But I know that you have tasted the night timber Blanc de Blanc 1992, which I believe was the very, very first vintage, right? It was the very first commercial vintage. Apparently they made a very small vintage in 91, just to check. And funnily enough, I tried it with Jerome Moyson, who is this peculiar Frenchman who collects English wine, lives in Maidstone. And he brought out a bottle in 2021 from his collection. And it was, I don't know when it had been disgorged, but I think, you know, a while back. And it was absolutely extraordinary just so fresh still loads of fizz incredibly long sort of hazelnuts a lot like a sort of sparkling white burgundy if anyone's ever had like Mm. an aged white burgundy it had those kind of flavors but still so fresh you know it hadn't gone brown or anything it was still very fizzy there was no sort of sherry notes it was really you know absolutely impeccable one of the best sparkling wines i've had And that was their first vintage, which was Hmm, just incredible. And just that vision. So you have Stanley and Stuart Moss, who are two Americans from Chicago, made lots of money selling dental equipment. And they came to England and they had this crazy idea to start making sparkling wine to take on champagne. And what was sort of so interesting about the way that they did it is that people had made sparkling wine in England before. And people had even made sparkling wine with Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. But what they were prepared to do was to sit on it for three years until it was ready. No one else would have had the money to do that. Mm. They would have had to have made wine and then sell it as quickly as possible as soon as it had got some fizz in it. Whereas whereas Stuart, um, and I was very, very lucky because he died while I was researching the book, but I spoke to him at length down the line from California, where they now live, or where he lived before he died. And he told me all about it, and he just said he wanted it to be absolutely right. So the vintage was 92, and they didn't release it until 1996, when he deemed it ready to drink. So that kind of level of perfectionism, backed up by lots of money, had never been seen before, and totally changed the playing field for English wine. Before, Before that, it was... Make some nice varieties. Wine. Yeah. And after that, it was like, hang on, you know, you can make wines that are as good as champagne. I don't think you can really overstate how important they are to the story. Well, it's funny. You also talk about, so Sandy Moss and also Mike Roberts, who very integral behind Ridgeview. The two of them visited Champagne and 
the Champenoise thought it was really funny that the English were thinking about making sparkling wine. <laughs> they well, had they no were, idea. Yeah, both of them were in the first intake at Plumpton College. So Plumpton College is the other part of the, the jigsaw of how English mm. wine became serious. So it was it was it's an agricultural college near Brighton and it started a wine programme under Chris Foss, who was from Bordeaux in the late 80s. And the first year they had Sandy Moss from Nightimber and Mike Roberts, who would go on to found Ridgeview, both both nearby. And they went on a on a field trip to to Champagne to to learn about how they do it in Champagne. And mm-hmm. apparently Champenoir thought that it was the funniest thing these two <laughs> people could come over from England. And 30 years later, Tattinger and Pomery would both be making wine in England. You know, it was inconceivable at the time that that would be happening. I know. It's fascinating. And it's brilliant because that really helps me, obviously, as you know, working for Balfour, like that's when we're still trying to prove to people that English sparkling wine is as good as champagne. It's like, look, when the champagne houses are here, that says something loud and clear. So, yes, I'm very excited when the first vintage of Domaine Evermond by Tattinger comes out, which I think is going to be next year, 2024. Yeah, yeah, I think they're aiming for next year. So that's yeah. going to be a huge story. I think it, and, and, and I think the wine will be, I have no doubt with the people who are involved, that the wine is going to be anything less than absolutely first rate. Have you taken part in blind tastings of our English wine versus the rest of the world? And I say that I'm presuming more English sparkling wine versus champagne. Have you taken part in a few? I've done it once and it was a very, very interesting experience because it basically showed how, it either showed how terrible I am at it or how good (laughs) English wine is. Because I was there and I tried one we're tasting all these wines and I was sort of going, oh, well, this one's definitely English. And then I tried one. And I was like, well, you know, obviously this one is so French. It's pro- and I thought it was like Rodera or something. And I thought it was so rich and biscuity. And I was thinking, yeah, you know, this is like a really good Grand Marc champagne. Mm-hmm. And it was Westwell non-vintage from Kent. So, Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so there we go. I have done it. And it's a, yeah, it's a very interesting experience because it shows just how good English wine is and how... They do taste pretty similar, you know, a really good champagne mm, and a good English yeah. wine. That's actually something that you do mention. There's So there's loads of stories, as I already mentioned, great gossip column with sophistication. That is what this book is. Um, but there's a lot of takeaways with some numbers, which is really interesting. And for me, okay, let me, I wrote these down because I wouldn't remember them. Although maybe I should test you and see if you do. Um, <laughs> but as an example... Land price per acre. I thought that was fascinating. We're still on about fifteen to twenty-five thousand per acre compared to five hundred thousand. Yeah, which... yeah. And so Champagne that like I think has the most some of the most expensive vineyard prices in the world. Oh. And so when people are saying as well that they think English wine is so expensive, they're expecting it to be so cheap. For me, I'm thinking, well, actually. I think that's bloody good value, to be honest, for exactly for our climate. It's not exactly very reliable for the fact that we obviously pay high wages in comparison to the rest of the world. You know, I think that our pricing point is actually pretty good, but it's it's super. Yeah, tell me what are you going to say. Uh, but also our yields are low. I mean, that's the oh, big problem. So, low. Mm-hmm. so our okay. yields are two thirds, half of really good vineyards in Champagne. And it's because because even though we sort of compare it to Champagne, Champagne has a continental climate. It's a lot drier it's a lot less changeable 
England is more like is damp. You know, yeah. we all know it's damp, mm-hmm. and therefore you have all. You know, that's the big problem is dealing with mildew, dealing with botrytis, all that kind of stuff. So it's you know, especially in a year like this year where they've had such a wet summer. You know, it, yeah. it's a real struggle to get a good yield. And that's never going to go away. I think, you know, the climate will get warmer, yeah. but it's always going to be damp because we're surrounded by the sea. In, we are an island. We forget We are that. literally an island, yeah. And we do have a similar climate. But, yeah, you really point out that we're maritime here and they are more continental. So it's, yeah, really, really interesting. that There is that slight difference. The other thing as well I thought in terms of numbers, which I thought was fascinating, was that at the moment, bless us, so in 2018, it ended up being registered. It changed around the numbers, but I actually looked online and apparently officially, according to WineGB, we made 13 million bottles in 2018 and they made 300 million We've got a long way to go, right? No, exactly. And we'll never, you know, we're never going to be that big. And I don't think we should ever, we, you know, we should ever try and be that big. I think, no. you know, just aiming at the sort of mid to top range is the way to go. It's it's impossible to make a really good cheap wine in England. And, and I don't think we should try. No. Precisely, precisely. And actually, you do touch on as well, though, that there are the pet nats, there are the Charmat method sparkling wines in England. So, of course, a very small percentage, literally, of all of our sparkling wine, it accounts for about 2%. But you go into detail on that as well, which I think is fascinating. So people can actually understand that there are different versions. There are things to try. It isn't all just the traditional method. And it's not like a knockoff of champagne. I think there's far more to explore than people might possibly realise. Yeah, the Charmat thing is is really interesting. I did a talk at Rye recently. And mm, I okay. asked people, you know, obviously a very engaged wine-loving audience if they're coming to a wine talk. And most of them didn't appreciate the difference between Charmat and champagne method. They didn't really, they didn't know that there was a different method and they didn't know that one was a lot more expensive than the other. Mm. But what they did know is that Prosecco tastes very different to champagne and that they're prepared to pay a lot more for champagne than for Prosecco. So the problem that English wine has is in communicating that one is one and the other is the other without getting into kind of boring stuff about production methods that most people don't know about, Mm. but they do appreciate the difference in taste. So it's sort of a kind of potential challenge for the future though i think it's one that the most producers do quite well by having a bottle that looks very champagne-esque so it looks like champagne it tastes like champagne and then the charmat ones or the pet nads they're a little bit funkier then people are like they don't taste like champagne and they don't look like champagne so you know perhaps perhaps we'll muddle through with that well, I mean, I've been trying to just let everyone know as well, once they do understand, if it says English sparkling wine, the three letters, it has to be the traditional method. Whereas actually the Charmat methods, it will just say sparkling wine, and then it will probably say somewhere made in England. But again, as you just said, the marketing, somehow that message needs to be brought to consumers. And considering we're still in that place where people don't even think that English sparkling wine is good... <laughs> We need people to be behind it and then understand the difference. So, but yeah, that's true. Yeah, if in doubt, if it's a funkier, funner, more colourful bottle, it's most likely tank method. If it looks classic, it's the traditional method. I think that's a fair. (laughs) That's sort of how how it works at the moment. Yeah, we'll see how that one does. What one to worry about? (laughs) 
<laughs> That's tomorrow's problem. Yeah. So do you have any other anecdotes or stories from your research and traveling around that that didn't make the book that now you're thinking, oh, do you know what? Maybe I should have put it in. Do you know, it's just stuff that is potentially libelous. So I actually can't really <laughs> tell you. It's just like, you know, someone will say, so-and-so treats his workers really, really badly and his vineyard manager has just left or so-and-so mucked up the harvest one year and was fired or, or you know, there was actually one that didn't go in the book because I didn't do it in time. Apparently the winemaker at Rathfinney ballsed up a batch of sparkling wine. He, he didn't put enough dosage in some of them and the fizz didn't develop properly. And there was a big story in the papers about him being fired for gross misconduct. So that's on the uh, record, you know, I don't need to you're allowed worry to. About, about libel. But that one didn't go in the book because I missed it. Um, <laughs> the book was pretty much done by the time that story came out. But yeah, I can't really say the ones that didn't go in because every, all the good, all the ones that I could legally tell you about have gone in unless I, unless they, you know, they broke. But there were so many stories. This is the annoying thing. There were so many stories that broke just after or just as I was putting the book to bed. So, for example, Balney in Sussex, they were bought by by Freshnet, yes. a <laughs> sort of Spanish-German sparkling wine behemoth. And I went to visit Sam Lin Linter, whose family owned it or did own it, and I interviewed her and I said, you know, so you will you be stepping down? She goes, oh, no, I'm staying on for the long term. You know, there's no way I'm not going anywhere. Oh, you know, is that what she we, said? <laughs> we, just, we just have our, you know, this money behind us, but nothing's going to change. And then just as, as I was about to press send on the book, an email came through saying, Sam has left. Mm -hmm. And so there was, a, there was an awful lot of that in the book where I just managed to get a footnote in saying, and then she left. But there were loads <laughs> of other stories like that where I just missed them. Well, it just goes to show the English wine industry is evolving and changing. It's very dynamic. And you're just going to have to write a part two in a few years' time, aren't you? Well, exactly. Oh, think yeah. of Charlie Holland from Gusborne. Yes. Just after the book came out, he left Gusborne and is now working Jackson. with a Californian wine mm -hmm. company, Jackson, Jackson Family, Family Vineyards in Essex. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's huge news. And I missed that one because the book was already done. And that is going to be very exciting. And I was chatting with Charlie just the other day at the Wine GB trade tasting. And I said, well, you've done amazing things at Gusborne. Gusborne's winning award after award. You know, everyone knows these are phenomenal wines. And you've gone across the Jackson family um, vineyards who haven't got any grapes yet. <laughs> They're just planting, you know, what's happening. He's like, do you know what? I, it's just a very exciting project. And I guess when you've got such a big family behind it, and I think he's going to probably be left to shape it all, I think, really grow that whole arm, the English arm. So who knows in, we need another conversation in, well, it's going to have to be what? six seven years before we actually get to taste a wine he's made from their own grapes but they will be you know making stuff won't they from some 14 grapes next i think year, so they? yeah i think mm, they're going to be mm, buying in some grapes i'm going plan. to define in canterbury and getting some things made so that to kind of build the brand but the proper estate wines won't be out for a long time but you know i feel like i won't say charlie achieved everything he could with gusborne because i feel like with gusborne kind of the sky's the limit but he had achieved a hell of a lot and was making among England's best sparkling wines. And I think, and it's some very, very good still wines. And I think he thought, you know what? 
I'm going to try a new challenge. So you know, I don't blame him at all. They're meant to be a great company to work for as well. I have also heard the same thing. So there we go. We, everybody that gets a big tick. We don't know about, we can't get the gossip out of Henry to, t- to tell us who are the real bad guys. But Gus Bourne, good guys, tick. <laughs> so we will be continuing this conversation again next week. We'll be looking at peewee varieties, hybrids, Germanic grape varieties. We'll be talking about how John Atkinson, who's a master of wine, thinks that we have our very own Petrus in Essex soils. Those of you that don't know about Chateau Petrus, this is a renowned French winery in Pomerol in Bordeaux, and it's known for producing some of the world's most sought after and expensive Merlot-based red wines. So you'll know far more about what that means on the next episode. I will be putting Henry on the spot and asking him where is the number one place in England to go and visit. So you definitely want to hear what his answer is. There's loads in part two, just as much as this episode. So I will close out today, of course, like usual, with a wine quote. And I have a very simple one from Robert Louis Stevenson. So he was a Scottish novelist. He was a poet. I thought I needed to find one from a writer to be true to this episode. And very simply, he said, wine is bottled poetry. And it is literally so true. Wine and poetry can be subjective. Not everybody has the same tastes. Wine has all this complexity and layers as you allow the flavours and aromas to evolve. But equally with poetry, you can dig deep and find extra meaning and emotion as you go and explore deeper. Both offer sensory pleasures and there, of course, is the connection and the sharing with other people. And just as poetry dives into that personal and intimate emotion very often, so does wine. And it's my job to try and pull that out of each bottle of wine and transmit it to you. And I think Henry as well has done an epic job doing just that. So that's it for today's episode. May you all have a successful week, savour the present and drink in the beauty of each day. Don't forget, if you are enjoying these episodes, the best way to show your support is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts specifically or the app that you are listening to because it makes the podcast more discoverable. Take a screenshot if you're listening on your mobile phone and put that up on your Instagram story or share it somewhere on one of your social media platforms. And don't forget, if you have any thoughts, comments, anything that you would like me to talk about, send me an email, yanina at eatsleepwinerepeat.co.uk or of course on Instagram, you can direct message me at eatsleep underscore winerepeat. And now I shall get back to my glass of English sparkling wine, which I am going to tell you about on the beginning of next week's episode. So raising my secret glass to you all until next week. Cheers to you.